0: Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. I've had a lot of guests with inspirational journeys on this pod. But my special guest for this episode has taken one of, if not the biggest negative in her life, and has turned it into a positive. Her name is Lottie Swinyard. On May 21st, 2015, when Lottie was a university student at Cardiff University, she lost her dad to cancer. Despite this, she is now helping others and doing amazing work as a PhD cancer researcher at Bart's Cancer Institute in London. Grief, finding your purpose, taking on new challenges and self-discovery are all on the menu. This is how our check-in went. Lottie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, pal. I've wanted to do this pod for so long. I'm buzzing to finally get you on. First off, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me. I've been excited about this for a while as well.
0: And... For the listeners, we have known each other for, I'd say, four or five years, thanks to our very good friend Dan, friend of the pod, Just Checking In Pod guest. I think the first time I ever met you was your mum's house night at The Nest,
1: maybe? That was the first night, yeah. That was uh, during the summer holidays, so I went to university with Dan, our lovely friend Dan. And uh, yeah, that was during the summer holidays, my first proper night out in London. You guys introduced me to the scene. It was a great night. It was a really, really great night.
0: Oh, I remember your mum's house. That was was some good times in that horrifically crowded club, The Nest. I've got such great memories from them. We have got a lot to get through on this pod, so shall we just get started? I want to start the pod, Lottie, by talking about the work you do as a cancer researcher first. Now, we're going to discuss the why a little bit later in the pod, but just tell me about how you began this journey and what it involves in your day-to-day life, really.
1: Yeah, so I didn't actually always know I was going to get into cancer research. I was always interested in bodies and disease and, you know, human nature, all those kind of things. And I sort of stumbled into cancer research. So now I'm working on hereditary colorectal cancer. I work in the lab every day. I collect human samples, which people really kindly donate to research. And yeah, so basically trying to work out the whys of people developing cancer and how we can use that to better treatment in the future.
0: And as you've gone on this journey, what have been some of the challenges you've encountered both from a technical and and educational perspective and also a mental health one? Has it been quite challenging in work-life balance or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I think being in this field is really hard self-esteem and sort of imposter syndrome. Those are the things that pop up really often in academia. And I think it's because of the fact that you're in a really high pressured environment surrounded by brilliant people that you start to doubt. Am I deserving of being here? So one of my big things I'm still working on is trying to convince myself I have worked to be here. I do deserve to be here. Yeah, apart from that, everyone in academia is super supportive. I think it's a very much an internal thing that you need to work on yourself rather than it's other people imposing it on you.
0: And just on that, what you said about imposter syndrome, Lottie, I'm sure loads of listeners who are listening to the pod have suffered with imposter syndrome. When it comes to your experience of it, was that purely from an academia perspective? Or was it to do with your gender or perhaps, you know, sexism you faced? Or was it just an educational perspective?
1: Yeah, I think that's hard to distinguish, isn't it? Because all of our lived experiences are kind of a mix match of everything that we've grown up with. At school, though, and at university, I was always very confident in myself. So I think it probably does stem from more being in a high pressured academic environment. Because yeah, at school, I've never was too worried about exams, sort of sailed my way through. And I'd say it's later in life that I started hitting these mental barriers.
0: And when it came to the art of academia itself, at what point in university did you think, nah, I want to continue in this educational field and do more good beyond my undergraduate degree?
1: I think it was probably after university, actually. I really enjoyed my undergrad, but I didn't at that point have any idea about going into grad school. I think it came from actually working in a corporate environment and knowing that's not for me. (laughs) I think sometimes you have to do the opposite of what you want to work out what you do want to do. So, yeah, corporate pharmaceuticals was absolutely not for me at all. So after that, I decided to do my master's and it was actually during my master's degree that I was stuck. I was absolutely in love with academia and research. And that's when I thought I'm carrying on with this career for sure.
0: And just from a mental health perspective, what things do you find that academia gives you when it comes to research or when it comes to doing your own work or your own projects?
1: Yeah, it does give you confidence, of course, because when things go right, it's the best feeling in the world. It's so satisfying. And when things go wrong, you can go into a bit of a rut of thinking, why am I even doing this? I'm hitting brick walls all over the place. But yeah, just holding on to those little wins. (laughs) Every little win counts.
0: And on this journey, have there been any breakthroughs you've made from a personal perspective which have given you a self-esteem boost or made you feel like, yeah, I'm really making a difference here?
1: Yeah, personally, I'm not great at public speaking, especially when it's in a crowded room. I get very nervous. So every time I give a speak, is a win for me. Every time I come off a stage or whatever the environment is that I'm giving the talk in, I think yes, I've done it again. I can do it.
0: And just on that presenting point, I'm sure public speaking is something that loads of people struggle with. It's something that I started off as being really good at, and then I kind of stopped being good at, and then I kind of got back to being good at it again. What tips would you give to any of the listeners you might? Struggle with public speaking from your experience?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you that it's a roller coaster, isn't it? That sometimes you're talking in front of 10 people and you get nervous, and then sometimes you're talking in front of 100 and you're not. It's a weird one. Uh, tips, oh gosh, uh, tips. I would just say that you're in a safe environment, nothing awful is going to happen. Actually, you care a lot more about how you look and how you sound than everyone else does. They're just there to actually listen to you. So I think just getting over that mental block of being like, people want to hear what you have to say, because otherwise they wouldn't be here. And just getting the point across and not worrying too much about how you look and sound.
0: And what hopes do you have for the future on this academic journey? Are there any particular ones that you can share with the listeners? Curing cancer? Professor Swinyard, perhaps?
1: Professor Swinyard would be lovely along the line. That's definitely a pipe dream, but we'll see. Curing cancer again. unrealistic but it would be lovely my personal goals would just to be to have any sort of difference so either a paper that comes out that is a cornerstone paper that people rely on or any sort of small breakthrough because I think we're all cogs in this big solution so just being a tiny cog within the solution would be ideal for me I would love that
0: and what do you think this academic journey has taught you about yourself do you think
1: Oh, that's a difficult one. What has it taught me about myself? Probably actually that I'm more capable than I think I am. A lot of self-doubt comes in all the time, but actually making lists, I find it really useful to make lists of reasons I'm proud of myself. And a lot of work things pop up on these lists all the time. There's other little things, you know, outside of work, but achievements in work are bigger than you think they are. And when you write them down and read them back to yourself, you think, actually, yeah, I did that. That was me that did that. So yeah, probably that I'm more capable than I give myself credit for.
0: And when it comes to those positive affirmations, do you read them once a day, once a week, when you're in a down period, you know, what's the kind of process that you use?
1: Completely depends. Not once a day. I think I'd get a big head if I read them once a day. (laughs) But I would say probably it's more likely once a month or, you know, depending on how things are going. If things are going well, I don't feel the need to. But when things are going badly, I need to go back and look at those things I've done in the past. I am proud of myself and think, yeah, things aren't going well right now, but you'll hit those wins again in the future.
0: And as you've navigated this academic journey, have there been any tangible connections you've made with people? or you've met someone and you think, wow, I would never have met them if I hadn't started this. And I'm so proud of myself for doing it.
1: Yeah, so one of my favourite connections I've made actually is a professor called Nabuya, who I met at a social function, uh, chatted to a little bit. And then maybe nine months later, I sent her an email and said, I don't know if you remember me, we just had a quick chat. I've got a bit of time on my hands, I'd love to work with you. And I actually ended up going out to America for three months and living with her and working in her lab. And that was one of my favourite experiences I've had to just kind of take that leap of faith and being like I know I'm a small fish and you're a big fish but could I please work with you paid off that time
0: and did that connecting ability take a while for you to get used to or develop or was it something just innate in you and you just did it without thinking
1: it depends on the setting in this setting I was really relaxed it was a social setting and I'm quite a social person in general I love chatting to people so that one was quite an easy connection to make but when it comes to conferences and networking, I struggle a little bit. I don't think I'm a hugely formal person and maybe don't come across knowing as much as I maybe do because I get flustered and I get a bit you know, childish and giggly. So that's something I'm still working on the formal side. But from a social side, yeah, I just love getting to know people. It's great, isn't it? Picking people's brains. Best thing to do.
0: I think very few people ever get used to that formal side, to be honest. For anyone listening to this pod, Lottie, who might want to get into academia themselves and especially women, I would say, what message or advice would you give them from your experience?
1: don't doubt yourself. You're just as good as the next candidate, if not better. And you need to show that for sure. Big yourself up. Every single experience is a big experience, even if you don't think it is. One week of work experience. Make the most of it. Say exactly what you did, what you learned from it. And then just send the emails. Just send everyone an email asking, can I be involved in this? Can I be involved in this? Just get involved as much as possible.
0: And just finally, what has been your proudest achievement, do you think?
1: that's such a hard one it probably depends on what perspective we're coming from I think a big one was getting a distinction in my master's I was really proud of myself because as I think we'll talk about my undergrad journey was a little bit difficult and I don't think I made the most of all of my undergrad experience because of that so just completing my master's and getting a distinction in it was a big thing and then I didn't go to my undergrad graduation so then going to my master's graduation was a really sort of special experience for me.
0: Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail now, Lots. Just talk me through your early life at the start, your hometown, maybe where you grew up, your teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Lottie we meet here?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a small town near Reading. I had a very standard middle-class childhood on the very privileged side of things that uh, I grew up in a nuclear family. My mum, dad and sister went on holiday every year. It was a really nice childhood. and I think I reflect quite a lot on how privileged I was to have a lovely childhood. No sort of early, early mental health problems. I think as a lot of girls will probably relate to, I think some mental health problems probably started creeping in within the teenage years and I think those were to do with image and weight and those kind of things nothing too serious I didn't have any eating disorders but I very much was like obsessed with how I looked and how much I weighed and those kind of things.
0: And did that ever become a very big problem for you or was it something that you took at the time as maybe something natural that every girl goes through what was your mental process going into that period or were you not really self-aware of it?
1: Yeah, I don't think I was self-aware of it at all. At the time, I don't think that I thought there was any problems. I consider myself a very average teenage girl. Looking back on it now, if I was to meet someone my age that was doing similar things, i.e. only eating one bowl of cereal a day and going to the gym constantly and, you know, counting calories and things like that, if I met a girl 14, 15 that was doing that, I'd be seriously worried. But I think that's twenty twenty vision in hindsight at the time it wasn't so much of an issue. And I think I really do feel for girls nowadays that it must be so much worse with all the social media and stuff. If it was that behaviour before social media, I can't even imagine what it's like for teenagers now. It must be really, really hard going. I don't envy them at all.
0: Secondary school and sixth form are definitely stressful and sometimes traumatic places for many people, Lottie. What were they like for you, both academically and I guess from a mental health perspective? And and just tell me about that period of your life.
1: Yeah, academically, I was very lucky in a sort of nature versus nurture side of things that I did sail through the academia things. And I really thrived in that sort of environment. And me and my sister had a very different experience of that, that they're dyslexic and had their strive, but struggled a little bit in certain areas, whereas I academically knew how to ace tests and do my homework and those kind of things. So that wasn't a problem. From a friend's point of view as well, I always had a very nice group of friends, a bit like your group of friends are very nice people. We're still in a really nice group now as well. Yeah, obviously, the trauma came during sixth form when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. So I was 17 at the time, and it just felt really bizarre that no one else I knew was going through anything similar. You know, some people had grandparents that passed away and things like that. But it did feel very lonely. And I didn't really know how to speak to anyone about it. And it felt a bit, from my point of view, attention seeking whenever I did speak about it as if I was trying to make myself a victim in the situation, like, oh, my dad's got cancer sort of thing. So yeah, that was a a strange experience that went on through the second year of my sixth form. So there was down periods and things and parties I didn't attend because dad was ill. And yeah, change changed things in the second year of sixth form.
0: I guess from that perspective, just before we go on to university, what you talked about there were stigmas that everyone feels about mental health or have, have been said to them. Did you almost feel like you were projecting stigmas that were projected onto you, if that makes sense? So you were feeling like these stigmas were true and that you were attention seeking well, and actually that couldn't have been further from the truth.
1: Yeah, in hindsight, I can't remember anyone ever saying anything to me about you're making a big deal out of this or anything. I can't remember any comments like that. So I'm sure it was something that was completely in my own mind. But I'm an (laughs) overthinker. I think about everything over and over again. So even if there was a little inkling that I started talking about dad being ill and someone left the conversation or something, I'd think, oh, no, I ruined the conversation. I'm such a downer. And that would go on in my head for weeks that I would think it was completely my fault when really that person probably just needed the toilet and walked off. But in your mind, it's such a massive deal. You get to
0: university now and you moved to Cardiff where you studied neuroscience At the time, obviously, your dad was going through this period of real struggle with his cancer. Do you think you were ready for university? And did you feel like at the time that you maybe felt less ready because of the emotional trauma or struggle that you were going through at the time as well?
1: Yeah, I was ready for university. I was really excited to go. And I think probably from a bit of a selfish point of view, it was a bit of an escapism from reality. The all of the hardships that were going on at home, I could go away to university and semi-pretend they don't exist. And then I'd go home in the holidays, face reality again and, you know, hear about the scans and the treatment and have updates from that point of view. And then I could go back to university and be Lottie, happy go lucky, no problems, sort of thing, which Sounds really selfish, doesn't it? But you have to have your little breaks from trauma sometimes.
0: And when you were kind of in that first few months of freshers and university, did you tell anyone about it? Obviously, it's a a really big thing to talk to someone about, especially if you've only known them for like two weeks. Did you struggle with letting people into that side of you, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I didn't speak to any of my peers about it. So I didn't talk to any friends or flatmates or anything like that about it. I think maybe later on, I started saying that dad had cancer for whatever reason, if I needed to go home or something, I would just say this is the reason why. But my mum did persuade me, which I'm really grateful for, to tell my personal tutor. So my personal tutor basically knew from day one and knew it wasn't a great prognosis. So in my head, I always had this idea that the possibility that at some point during this three year undergrad, something quite bad might happen. And so telling my personal tutor and always having that allowance of if I did need to go home without explanation, it was there.
0: And just on that, when you did go home, were you even more conscious of creating really beautiful memories of your dad, knowing what you did and perhaps the prognosis that you did and overthinking it?
1: Yeah. So dad was ill for four, four and a bit years. And over that time, we went on some really, really lovely holidays. Yeah, we were conscious of time for sure. Every Christmas was amazing. Yeah, some of the holidays we went on will last forever. The Christmas before he passed away, we went to Finland and on Christmas Day, we saw the Northern Lights. And that for me was just, you know, one of those experiences that you couldn't even predict and you couldn't time it better. It was, yeah, amazing.
0: Let's talk about the VENT article now that you wrote and that final year of university. For any of the listeners who haven't read it, do you want to just talk about why you wanted to write it first and then the journey towards that final year exam in May and then what transpired afterwards?
1: Yeah, it was a mixture of things dealing with death and grief by yourself well not by yourself I had my family but not talking to friends about it and being at university and away from your family is really difficult and so I wanted to talk about that because I think it's something that I personally didn't have any resources and didn't have anyone else that had ever talked about it before so there was nothing for me to go back and rely on and think oh yeah I'm going through the same thing That like a bit of a sanity check you went through that and I'm going through that that's nice that we both went through the same thing as each other also I wanted to talk about it because I've struggled with anxiety as well and I think talking about anxiety normalizes it because I think it is normal most people will have some sort of anxiety or a panic attack in their lifetime but it is stigmatized and you think at the time I'm dying or there's something wrong with my head I have no idea what's going on but just knowing okay it's a panic attack this is what's happening I've read about it before other people have been through it and also other people that you don't necessarily you wouldn't think they have anxiety the most confident people I know struggle with anxiety which is nice to know that it's nothing wrong with your personality. It's just an absolutely normal thing that happens to everyone.
0: Just on when you talked about anxiety there and panic attacks, you say in the article that you bottled up your emotions quite a lot during this period, which led to these anxiety and panic attacks. You said, I had a great time during my degree and had many fun times. But on the flip side to that, I spent nights crying into my pillow, trying to stay as quiet as possible so no one could hear me. If you could Just tell me a bit about this period of your life and I guess the struggle you had with telling people about it and then also trying to find resources or outlets to be able to vent or let people know.
1: Yeah, I'm not good at acknowledging or talking about my feelings, which is a personal problem that I'm still working on and I'm better than I was. But I find it really hard talking about feelings. I'm sure a lot of people do. You always kind of want to be the light hearted, fun one in the room. You don't want to be the downer, do you? <laughs> so especially talking about something that is really an upsetting subject was difficult. So I tended to not and just blase over it. And also when people would ask, I'd say, Yeah, things are fine. I don't want to go into it, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, which I think a lot of people do it's fine it's probably a commonly used phrase when you're not fine so yeah I didn't talk about it much but of course emotions are emotions they're going to come out at some point you can't just get rid of them so usually it would be a night when you're on your own Uh, You'd start thinking about things. Oh, I can't sleep. Thoughts go around in your head. And I also think everything's worse at nighttime, isn't it? As soon as the sun comes up in the morning, everything feels half as bad as it does when it's dark. So yeah, I did have nights where I was upset in bed by myself. And I didn't go and talk to anyone. I didn't want to phone anyone to wake anyone up. So it's a lonely time when you're just there with your thoughts.
0: Just tell me a bit about when your mum called you home now, if you could. So you and your sister got home from your respective universities, but unfortunately your dad passed away 18 hours later. If you could, and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want here, just tell me a bit about that moment, maybe the impact it had on you and your family, and then the days and weeks after it, you were having to practice telling your exam officials that your dad had passed away. Is that right?
1: It was a massive surprise, actually, because dad during his treatment always had this roller coaster of feeling better, feeling worse. So even when my mum texts saying you need to come home, part of me was thinking I can't come home. I'm in the middle of my last year exams. I literally had done two and I think I had three or four left to go. thinking I can't come home this is ridiculous and also my mum is an incredibly positive person so for her to say you need to come home was a bit of a reality check wow something really is happening because she dealt with everything so well throughout the whole period that this Text was like, Oh, it's serious. Okay, it's serious now. I do need to come home. And I am so, so grateful that me and my sister came home when we did. Because, as you say, he passed away less than 24 hours later. And just all of us being in the room at the time when he passed away is priceless. You couldn't change it at all. And I'm so grateful we all were there. But yeah, so as soon as he died, weirdly, one of my first thoughts within the first couple of hours of him dying was, Oh, God, what am I going to do about my exams? It's a strange one because it kind of feels weirdly practical, doesn't it? To think when you've just lost a family member. So, yeah, I had to send emails out and some people at university were great about it. So my personal tutor straight away it was like, Lottie, don't worry about it. We'll sort it out later. Just go and do what you need to do. Some others were less. We won't go into detail, but they were less than useful. Kind of saying, well, you need to come back and do your exams, which, yeah, wasn't ideal. <laughs> But overall, the exam thing was a weird cloud hanging over everything. It definitely gave me anxiety knowing at some point I need to go back and finish off this three year degree that I've started.
0: And as you moved through the grieving process, Lottie, what was that like for you and your mental health? You know, every person obviously grieves in a very different way and it's obviously unique to them. Do you think you processed it as best you could, given this massive cloud of exams that were hanging over you?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely did not handle it well. And I I wouldn't be the one to stand up and say, you know, I'm the perfect griever. I didn't handle it well at all. And I think my grieving process was actually quite delayed. One, because of the shock to start with, and obviously trying to keep it together to finish off my degree and everything like that. But also because I'm a bottler, I didn't speak about things to start with at all. I, to this day, actually haven't done as much or any counselling to do with my grief, which I think is something that I still need to look into. And also another factor of the delayed process is that after dad died. I actually moved back in with my mum for a year. It was just me and my mum and my sister was still living away. And I felt like I had to keep it together for mum. She was going through this whole massive process that she got together with my dad when she was 17. hasn't really known adult life without him. And it was horrible to see your mum break down like that. It's just... I wouldn't wish it on anyone it's absolutely a horrible experience so I was trying to keep it together for mum a little bit so I don't think it was until about a year after dad died that really my proper grieving process started so yeah it's five years on now from when dad died and I'd still say I was only a couple of years really into the grieving process and it's still ongoing and peaks and troughs you know. Do you think that added extra
0: responsibility to you or that it perhaps stopped you grieving straight away, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't say necessarily responsibility because mum didn't put any responsibility on me. I think it was more just that it was such a highly emotional environment that almost my natural instincts to kind of protect myself came in that I just shut down completely my brain and my emotions just went no I can't handle this it's too much and so it's not until the environment sort of gradually gradually started detensifying that my body was like okay we can start processing a little bit chipping away at this massive block that's been there for about a year or so now.
0: In the article, you say how much progress you've made with your dad's passing. You've just alluded to it there. You say you refer to him in the past, not present tense now. And you always speak so positively and fondly about your dad. Why don't you tell me what kind of man he was like for the listeners who didn't know him, some of your favourite memories, and I guess how important that is for you and other people who have experienced parental grief?
1: Yeah, my dad was very special. He was a professor of astrophysics, which in itself is very cool. He was basically a rocket scientist, which as a kid, I was running around the playground, you know, my dad's a rocket scientist (laughs) sort of thing. And it's not until actually, I'd say the last couple of years, I really appreciated how amazing that is. But on the other flip side of things, he was just so naughty, always taking the mick, you know, in serious situations, there would always be jokes going on. He was a bit of an anarchist, didn't stick to the rules, which definitely rubbed off me (laughs) i find rules really hard to follow (laughs) so yeah he was great always fun to be around always a game going on and i think i got a little bit of both sides obviously got a bit of science and academia from him but a bit of the rebel side of things as well
0: my favorite part of the article is in the final paragraph where you say after all this time my anxiety hasn't been cured but i've created ways of dealing with it One day, a couple of years ago, I promised myself I would never let anxiety stop me doing anything I wanted to do. And I've lived up to that promise. A combination of talking to loved ones, facing up to what has happened and being a bit kinder to myself has resulted in me being able to live a life I believe would make my dad proud. Tell me about the Lottie who wrote that article as opposed to the one now.
1: Yeah, I I like that you've read that line, actually. It's nice to hear back. I haven't read that article in a while, actually. I think anxiety and grief and all these things are an ever-changing process. I sometimes feel like I'm on a spinning teacup on a roller coaster and everything's changing every 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days. So how you feel... One minute might not be the next, but the coping mechanisms absolutely help. And acknowledging the fact, yes, you have anxiety. Yes, you've been through this traumatic experience, but you don't need to make it define your life. You can Do the experiences you want to do and go ahead with them. One thing that definitely changed with dad being ill and dad dying was the live for the moment and you like tomorrow is not promised, basically mentality, which I do live by. And I'm not going to sit here and say I do do everything. There is some things that I do struggle with and I find too hard to do. But one of the things like flying to America and living there by myself, I was petrified to do absolutely petrified I was in the airport I was crying the whole way through the airport I'm not a strong person but just taking that leap of faith and doing it and it paid off and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had and I think sometimes you just need to go for things and think it's not the worst thing that's ever going to happen in the world if you don't like it you can come back or if you don't like it just stop doing it but just go for it to start with.
0: And as you got older and navigated life without your dad and this fully fledged grown woman that you are have there ever been moments when you wished he was here with you to guide you or watch you achieve something? Or do you feel like he's always watching you somewhere?
1: Yeah, there's things that I struggle with when I need advice on certain things, academia, life choices, all that kind of thing. I actually get a little bit angry sometimes I I get a bit angry thinking this isn't fair why is dad not here to answer these questions for me and sort of damn the fates of life kind of thing why is it me that this has happened to but also you, you have to count your blessings life would be nothing if you didn't count your blessings so my blessings are that I did have an amazing dad in my life for 21 years which is more than other people get so yeah I'm extremely grateful to even have him in my life and have those lasting impacts that the decisions I make now actually have been impacted by having him in my life at all so yes it's a hard one not to be bitter about but there are positives too of even having him at all
0: and as you move forward after your dad's passing what has the relationship with your sister and your mum been like I know you're always praising your mum on Instagram and stuff like that do you think it's made your bond stronger or taken on a whole new dimension maybe
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are so close. I couldn't have done any of this without my mum or sister, and both of them have handled everything incredibly. My mum, especially, I mean, my sister's brilliant, but my mum has just become the most amazing independent person and definitely taking on that mentality I was on about of just do it so she's been off on these big traveling trips by herself she's taken on new work experiences volunteering work she actually now volunteers in the hospice that my dad died in and I just cannot be more proud of her from the place that we were in when we were living together seeing almost sort of a broken woman To now, just a complete, absolute change. Yeah, I if I could be half the woman my mum is, I would be ecstatic.
0: Let's hope she's listening to this pod.
1: (laughs) I'm sure she will.
0: We say so much on this pod, Lottie, that grief is more stigmatized than mental health. Is that something you'd agree with from your experience? And also, since you've gone on this journey. Have you found resources or people that have, you know, lost loved ones or family members that you can connect with and share those commonalities where you didn't have them before?
1: Yeah, that's a, a funny question because I think in a way, almost having a grief is sort of a reason why you have mental health problems because I think a lot of people think why do you have depression why do you have anxiety there has to be a reason for it where of course it's a disease there's no reason that you have a disease but people want to legitimize why you have this so me saying oh my dad died is almost like an explanation of why you might have mental health problems so from that sense maybe it's less stigmatized but with grief as well, I think there's a certain time period where people think you should be over it. So in five years, people think, oh, that's quite a long period. Like, why are you still getting upset about this? Five years ago, get over it, mate. And um, So I think in the first year or the, maybe the first two years, people kind of give you a bit of leeway. But there's definitely a ticking clock on how long you can be sad for, which obviously is completely ridiculous. The things are going to come and go throughout your whole lifetime when you've lost someone you love.
0: Was Professor Swinyard, as you corrected me in the DMs, to the reason why you are doing the work you are today in cancer research, and how proud you think he is of you.
1: It definitely played a role. I think just from experiences as well. I went to some of Dad's appointments with him, and then towards the end he was on a clinical trial as well, which I found fascinating. I went along to the Royal Marsden with him, and he was talking to all of his doctors about it, and I was just enthralled. So him having cancer definitely played a role. But I think I probably would have been in some sort of medical research regardless, just because of who I am as a person and what I was interested in in earlier life. I think that was the path I was going down. But it pushed me towards the cancer side of things, which I'm grateful for, because I wouldn't change my field or my job for the world.
0: And if your dad was listening to this pod right now, Lottie, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think you would say to him?
1: Well, I guess the obvious question would be, how am I doing? <laughs> you know, give me a, a star rating out of 10. How am I doing? Just any advice. I just find that I the thing I miss the most is the advice. So there's so many things that I just doubt myself on. Decision making is not easy for me. And I think, is this the right decision? And sometimes you just need someone to like tap you on the back and be like, yeah. This is the right decision. Yeah, your gut's fine. Go for it. But sometimes, just not having that verbal reassurance that the decision you're making is right is difficult. So, I think I just want him to say, "You're doing fine, mate. Keep going. It's all good. It's all good." That would be something that would be lovely to hear.
0: And if there's anyone listening to this pod, lots who might have experienced grief or is living through it right now, what message or advice would you give them from your experience?
1: I say be easy on yourself it's really it's a very traumatic thing to go through and I think because death is part of life and you know most people have at some point lost someone it's almost a bit too normalized but like really give yourself a bit of credit you are going through something massive and there's no reason why you shouldn't be reacting the way you are so yeah give yourself time give yourself a bit of space and also just Actually, programming time into your timetable to, to think about it, I think, is really important because I sometimes, when I'm busy, I'll go weeks without even thinking about dad and losing dad. And it makes me sad to not think about him. I think it's important to. Make sure you have time to remember the good times, remember what's happened, be like, where am I? Kind of do a bit of a reality check. Where am I with grief at the moment? Yeah, and talk to people about it. Problem talked about is a problem halved. It's so true. Just talk to people about it. And most people, if they're worth having in your life, they'll be listening.
0: And are there any resources, websites, books, for example, on grief that you found really useful to you or that you can share with the listeners? I just read one from Simon Thomas, the former Blue Peter presenter about him losing his wife to cancer. So that was a really good book. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of things about grief, even though I've gone through grief myself, things that you said about the time limit thing. He was really talked about that a lot. Are there any resources that you can point people to that have helped you?
1: Yeah, I'm not, so I'm not a very good person to talk about this as I said I still really need to get into some sort of professional help to do with breathing. But the thing I found useful, actually, is getting involved with Cancer Research UK and Stand Up to Cancer. So I think I'm quite a sort of proactive person and I feel better about things when I'm actually sort of moving. I have to always be like moving forward. So, yeah, for me, I found fundraising and talking about cancer research and also doing a few videos for the Stand Up to Cancer campaign and things like that. They were really useful for me, just feeling like I was making a difference in moving forward and also it's quite therapeutic as well to think that maybe you're helping someone that's in a similar situation in the future
0: and just on that we spoke off air about the videos that you've done for stand up to cancer how much of a step out of your comfort zone was that and have you gone on a journey of becoming an advocate for kind of grief awareness and being able to talk about your grief more openly
1: Yeah, it was hugely out of my comfort zone. (laughs) I'm not someone that sits in front of a camera naturally. Yeah, being an actor is not a career that is suited for me. But it was a really nice experience, and everyone at Stand Up to Cancer is so friendly. So it was a really nice experience. It was probably one of the first times that I really talked about the whole experience, and especially publicly. I think talking about things publicly is difficult. You're really opening yourself up for scrutinising, and then listening back to yourself talking about something that's so personal as well is... A whole nother ball game so yeah it was definitely out of my comfort zone but it's also one of the proudest things I've done and I'm so so glad I did do it and you know having the nice feedback from people saying I didn't know this is how you felt at the time I've been through something similar I've got some very close friends that have lost parents as well so just them saying to me like yeah I felt exactly the same that's exactly what I went through and sometimes you just need to hear that from my point of view and from other people's point of view that this is exactly how I felt and it almost like halves the problem knowing someone else feels the same way as you.
0: And just finally Lottie, after university you decided to move to London where you study and work now, you're in my family's old ends of Bethnal Green, how big a positive has this been for you as you've said you haven't found it a challenge at all moving to a different city?
1: Yeah East London massive, love it. (laughs) I've loved moving to London there's sometimes where I feel a little bit especially when I go into central London I feel the different parts of London are very different and sometimes when I go into central London I can feel a little bit overwhelmed like oh this is such a big city and I'm such a little tiny dot in this massive city but yeah no I've loved moving to London I think particularly because I'm quite into writing poetry and that kind of thing you find people that are similar to you in big cities which I've really loved and I love the maybe not at the moment of course, during. A pandemic but usually in normal life and you can go online and find any sort of event that suited to you or even try something new you know I tried sort of like oh I can't remember what it's called like chanting meditating like with a drum that was really cool you know I'm not going to go every week but it was a really cool experience and I feel like you just there's so much more out there in big cities and you find the people that are your group you know so and especially having my work environment some of my work friends and now some of my best friends as well that I wouldn't have met beforehand and you meet people with so many different perspectives that open your mind and I've really really enjoyed just having my mind opened.
0: And as you've kind of lived here for a number of years now have you developed a kind of peer support group or a group of friends in London that you can have those conversations about your mental health if you want to? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think to start with, it's not something that I would talk about with people. But as the years have gone on, you're completely right that you find people that you mesh with and that you can open up with. And it's a lot easier to So, yeah, I definitely have a lovely support group. I think there's still things that you always have to deal with by yourself. You can't always rely on other people to be your support group. So there's still certain things about anxiety and different things like that. The that I'm dealing with on my own in my own time but that's not to say that you can't tell people about your progress and how you're getting on which is actually a really nice thing and for them to hold you accountable like are you looking after yourself this week have you drunk too much this weekend you know that kind of thing
0: our final topic of conversation lots and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter about our mental health so firstly And you can include circumstances or exclude them. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, pal?
1: Can I just say, Fred, I love that you do this podcast. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's something that everyone should talk about way more. So thank you for having this platform. How's my mental health at the moment? It's better than it was. You know what? In the middle of lockdown, in hindsight, I look back and actually I was in a massive rut. My motivation completely non-existent. The sort of why you get out of bed in the morning just wasn't there. My days were getting later and later. And I think at the time I didn't acknowledge it. But looking back now, it definitely was a massive slump. But yeah, I'm feeling better now. And I think the reason for that is that actually I'm going back in to do half days in the lab. And that is something that I love doing. It gives me a bit of structure to my day. And I come back home. I do the morning shift. So I come back at lunchtime and I'm raring to go in the afternoon. And I'm not a morning person at all. But it's definitely lovely having some, some structure and some routine to your day. So yeah, it's better now than it was still an ongoing process.
0: And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life?
1: Yeah my personal mental health issue is and always has been anxiety and I think that comes from overthinking and all of those kind of lovely things that go on in your head and not being able to switch off ever. It'd be lovely wouldn't it to have an on and off switch to stop thinking for a bit. Yeah mine's anxiety so I have struggled in the past and still sometimes do have panic attacks so I've been through periods where they've been more prominent than others but yeah panic attacks what a lovely experience they are aren't they?
0: (laughs) honestly, the bane of my life. And I think with mine, when people say, oh, breathing is the best way to solve them, I can't solve them with breathing. I need closure. If I've made a mistake, I need someone to go, it's fine. Not regulate your breathing. Regulate my breathing doesn't do anything, doesn't solve the situation.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Some of my panic attacks come from the fact I think I'm going to stop breathing. (laughs) So concentrating on my breathing is not helpful at all. (laughs) Yes, everyone has their own triggers, don't they? And everyone has their own coping mechanisms. And I think it's great that you can get to know your own coping mechanisms and work out what works for you yeah one blanket solution is not going to fix everyone is it
0: and what age do you think you were when you first realized that these feelings or panic attacks you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind
1: I remember my first panic attack actually really distinctly I was on a ferry on the way back from France to England and it was during the 2012 Olympics so I was 18 at the time I was just sat in the ferry watching the Olympics. And I remember thinking, oh, I need some fresh air. I don't feel right. And so I went out onto the deck to get some fresh air. And suddenly I just this overwhelming feeling of I think I'm going to die. You know, when you're sweating, you're shaking and you're like, I have no idea what's going on in my body right now. And it feels so physical. And I remember just standing there and my dad came out to chat to me and was like, what's going on? And I think he realized within a couple of minutes that I was probably having a panic attack. But I had no idea in my head what was going on. And it wasn't until maybe a couple of months later that I really acknowledged Oh right, that was a panic attack. But yeah, they feel super physical. It's it's quite a sp- scary experience when you don't know what's happening.
0: And just on that, was there a trigger for it happening? And if there wasn't, what other triggers do you have that might affect your mental health or cause panic attacks? Or so have you not really figured all of them out yet?
1: Yeah, there wasn't any sort of immediate trigger, and I don't think I do have an immediate trigger. I think for mine, it's more how is my mental health long term, whether I'm going to get a random panic attack or not, because. I was just sat with my family on a ferry watching the Olympics, you know, there was no immediate trigger at all. But it was maybe six months or so after dad was diagnosed with cancer. So I think that probably paid a role in it. And also I was 18 at the time. So I really I'd only properly not in a park started drinking. And I think for me, alcohol intake is a massive sort of long term thing of how my anxiety is going to be. So I think that probably played a role in it as well. Yeah.
0: And what was it like when you had that first conversation with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? Did you feel like a part of you had changed, or that you had entered a new chapter in your life, or did it seem fairly insignificant? You know, how do you look back on it?
1: I think to start with, I sort of tried to brush it off. It's not until actually the last couple of years that I've really said to myself lot you have anxiety (laughs) and like said it out loud you know it's a thing it's going to be a thing for you probably your whole life just acknowledge it so yeah for the first couple of years i think i just brushed it off as in like oh this won't happen to me i don't have anything wrong it's a one-time thing or you know if i try hard enough i can just stop it it's my head i can stop it if i want to which obviously looking back is just a silly thing to think (laughs) but when you're younger you do these things yeah so i don't think i really probably talked about it a couple of years ago and I think probably it was with my mum, sister, sort of acknowledging these things. But as I say, I've never been to a professional, (laughs) which I probably should at some point. But yeah, I think a conversation with yourself helps as well, acknowledging it.
0: And how do you support friends or family in your life who might be struggling with their mental health or might have mental health issues themselves?
1: I think shared experiences helps so there's some things that I don't have shared experience of like depression but I think just making sure everyone knows that they're completely and utterly loved and completely and utterly safe and so that they can sit with these emotions and nothing bad's going to happen to them they're like in a padded room you know nothing bad's going to happen and just being that that padding around them and saying I know things aren't nice right now. It's really uncomfortable and really shit. But I'm going to sit here and hug you for as long as you need hugging for. And these emotions can come and go, let them come and go. But I'm, I'll am i be here throughout. There's no judgment here and completely and utterly love you to bits.
0: And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: General healthiness really helps, you know, exercise, eating well, not drinking, all those things really, really help. And it's easier said than done. You go through hectic periods of your life where you're not sleeping well, you're not getting exercise, and you're drinking about six cups of coffee a day. And it's not healthy, but sometimes you need those periods to get you through the busyness and get it done, you know. And so then saying, right now is time for me to look after myself. I know I've got this massive to do list, but actually, this to do list is not going to get done if I'm not in the right mindset. So I need to first sit here and go for that run or you know have a hour bath or you know spend a Sunday binging the TV and have a hot chocolate those kind of things just giving yourself time to be like I need to be the best version of myself to move forward and so yeah I say those are coping mechanisms then also just knowing when you feel good so you know there's that phrase remember when you feel like your best and so you know when I'm sat around having dinner with people that make me feel good putting that little feeling in my head and be like right I feel good right now because I'm having a laugh with people who bring out the best in me and we're all sat around having good food so having those things that make you feel good at regular periods in your life.
0: Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod Lottie and I always try and separate into kind of a few prisms you know sexism is one I guess homophobia is another thing and hopefully in a few years toxic masculinity will be in the minority and positive masculinity will be in the majority. From a female perspective have you ever experienced toxic masculinity and if so what examples of it can you share with the listeners?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think everyone's come across toxic masculinity. I think it's unavoidable, isn't it really? People feeling like they can't open up is I think the worst thing to come out of toxic masculinity to say what men don't have emotions. Is that a thing? (laughs) No, absolutely. That's not a thing. Opening up and saying how you feel and being vulnerable, actually, I think is really masculine. I think that's a super great quality to have in a man that you can say this is exactly how I'm feeling right now and articulate how you're feeling. I know it's easier said than done. But yeah, toxic masculinity is part of life. And I don't think it's really helped by the current leaders of the world. (laughs) There's a a lot of toxic masculinity in uh, places of power right now, which kind of doesn't lead by example.
0: When I was going through what I was going through, Lottie, with my mental health, I subconsciously or consciously would open up more to girls than I would to boys because of the fear I had over being bantered or taking the piss out or for showing emotion. When you were growing up, and I guess in university or adult life as well, have boys ever come to you and talked about their emotions or shared that fear of being scared of talking about it with other boys? And also, have you seen the attitude start to change now with boys that you know, where they are talking about it with their guy mates?
1: Yeah, I think I'm really lucky that I do have a lot of emotional guy friends and I do have some very close friends that are really good at talking about their emotions. And I think if anything, they can teach me something because I'm not great at talking about my emotions and some of my guy friends are actually better at it than me. So I don't think it's something that's natural. It's definitely something that's learned because of society, you know. And I definitely think that attitudes are changing in these years. And I think a lot of that comes from, I love it when I watch a TV program and people open up. But yeah, movies and things, I think, play a massive role. Having vulnerable male characters in movies, I think, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot more people are opening up. And this podcast you have, and I know there's other male celebrities as well that have done documentaries about their mental health. is brilliant.
0: And just finally, Lottie, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to?
1: I think it's about being in an absolutely no judgment zone. I think anything you say has to be without any judgment, without any stigma attached to it, so that people do feel like, yes, I can say this. And also getting more people that are respected and people that have like big platforms talking about it, so that it's not something, oh, if I want to be successful in life, I can't talk about this. We need people that are successful in life to talk about their struggles as well, and not just be like, oh, yeah, it's all plain sailing for me. I got here easy peasy. That doesn't help anyone does it get to where they need to be so yeah no stigma no judgment and having more of these great platforms
0: well i think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just checking in podcast i want to say a massive massive thank you to lottie for her honesty and her openness i hope if anyone's listening to this pod who might be grieving or has gone through a period of grief i hope this has helped you as always thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, write us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.